Here's what God's word says. From the day that the ark was lodged at kiriath Terim, a long time past, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the, the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord, our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not ent again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel. From Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel, and he built an altar to the Lord. Let's pray and ask for the Lord to teach us today. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. Lord, your, the fact that we have your word is a constant reminder to us that you are pursuing us, that you long to have relationship with us, that you are a God that desires to be close, that desires to have us as your people know your voice and know your heart. And so, Lord, today as we gather um, to hear from you, Lord, we pray that that's exactly what would happen, that we would hear from you, that you would speak to us. Lord, that you would, through your spirit, speak truth to our hearts today. We need your voice. Thank you that you are present among us, that you are with us, that you will never leave us or forsake us. We pray you be glorified in all that we do today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, when I was a freshman in high school, uh, we all do stupid things when we're freshmen in high school, right? I was a freshman in high school, and um, I'm a bit ashamed of this story, but I, I had a friend of mine on the baseball team 
over to my house. Um, well, I had, I had one of my friends who was also a freshman, but then we also had a senior. And uh, when a freshman hangs out with a senior, things just tend to never go right, okay? So I had my friend over, and he was like the, the biggest guy on the baseball team, um, probably about 6'3", six, 6'4", six, just a big, strong dude. And we lived in a cul-de-sac, and um, some, for some reason, we're hanging out, and we thought it'd be a really fun idea to take a, a wooden baseball bat and a bunch of golf balls and just start hitting them over the wash into that abundant sea of houses behind the wash. We just thought, that sounds like a ton of fun to a 14-year-old, right? I blame it on the senior. He should have known better. But we started doing this, you know, and we would stand there with this wooden baseball bat and you just toss a little golf ball. And when you hit a golf ball with a baseball bat, man, there are few things in this world more satisfying than that feeling of launching a golf ball just hundreds of feet away. It feels really good. And it just disappears, actually. It doesn't go anywhere. It just goes into the sky and you stop seeing it, right? I'm pretty sure that's what I thought happened when I was 14. But we did this for a while and we were just blasting these things. And it was also really fun to watch, you know, this 6'4 senior who's a great baseball player just absolutely launch these things. It was a blast. I had so much fun. Until um, a couple hours later, we're at home. You know, my friend had gone home. Everything was fine. And a neighbor comes and knocks on the door with pieces of a broken fence and this story of how they had a kiddie pool in their backyard and someone could have gotten really hurt. And so one of my parents came and grabbed me and I come up to the front door and I have to have that conversation, right? Where it's like, yeah, I think I did that. And, you know, my, my parents have to tell me to say sorry. And I reluctantly say I'm sorry, even though I wasn't sorry because I was a 14 year old. And I was like, that was so much fun. I'm more sorry that I just got caught. Like that was the situation, right? It was just one of those moments that we've all had in our lives where we're, we're kind of forced to give an apology, right? We're like, this happens a lot when you're a kid where your parent just makes you say sorry, even if you don't want to, because it's the right thing to do and you did something wrong. Or we all know what it's like to be forced to give an apology that we don't really mean. Right? We know what that feels like. We also know what it's like to be on the receiving end of someone giving us an apology that we know they don't really mean. We, we've all experienced this before. And culturally, in, in our world today, we have seen a complete de-evolution of apologies and repentance, right? Where we have, we've seen time and time again, I mean, just, just look at probably the last couple years, right? Where there's been allegations that have come to the surface for certain people or against certain companies or whatnot. And, and time and time again, it just seems like we're constantly seeing someone release a statement that is some sort of apology for something that they've done. And yet every time it happens, we're like, that's the worst apology I've ever seen. Like, our culture just doesn't know how to apologize for things anymore, right? It's just kind of like, what are you saying? Right, we'll, we'll, we'll see things that are like, well, mistakes were made. You're like, that, dude, that's not an apology. Mistakes were made? Or if, if anyone was a, a offended, I'm sorry. That's not an apology that you're saying. If, I, mean, I mean, we know this. Right? We, we can kind of like decipher it, I hope. Or I'm sorry that you felt this way. Right? Our culture has just kind of mastered the I'm sorry and I'm not sorry statement at the same time. For we just don't quite know what repentance looks like anymore. And yet because of the mercy of Christ and his sacrifice on the cross for us, we as followers of Jesus should be a people that are regularly acquainted with repentance. And it should actually be something that we're grateful for to even have the opportunity to repent because of the mercy of Christ. 
It's something that we should be regularly acquainted with. And so I want to ask this question this morning as we come to 1 Samuel chapter 7, is what does genuine repentance look like? What does genuine, real repentance look like? Is it just kind of maybe saying the right words? Like if you say the right words, then you've, you've properly repented. Or is it like an attitude, right? If you feel sorry enough and show in your posture enough that you feel bad enough, then it's real repentance. Or if you just never do the thing again, then you prove like you were really repentant and sorry. What makes genuine repentance? In 1 Samuel chapter 7, we come to a, a point in the story where where the ark has been returned to Israel, right? So if we, if we go back to, to the beginning of 1 first, first Samuel, we see that no one's following the Lord. No one's seeking God. And so God kind of removes his presence, removes his voice from among the people in hopes to bring them back to him. He pronounces judgment on some really evil, wicked spiritual leaders. And uh, last week when we saw that the ark was returned to the people of Israel after the Lord just accomplished victory over the Philistines all by himself, and he brings his presence back to the people, from that point to where we land today is about 20 years in between. So you remember last week, we kind of ended on this, a bit of this somber note where, where the ark returns to the people of Israel and they, and they worship the Lord, but they don't quite do it properly because they've forgotten how to do it. And not even the priests who should know how to worship the Lord did it properly. And so the Lord kills 70 of them because they're not treating him as holy. And it's just kind of left there. And then we have 20 years to just kind of think, well, I, we don't really know what's happening. There doesn't really seem to be like the, the people of God have really repented from their sins and come back to him until we get to 1 Samuel 7, verse 2, where it says, a long time has passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Finally, there's kind of this glimpse of repentance where all the house of Israel is now lamenting after the Lord. And it's kind of like Samuel, who's been raised up to be the leader of the people of Israel now, now that the old priest Eli and his sons have died. He's just kind of, it's almost as if he's just kind of been waiting for the right moment to speak to the people of Israel. And then this verse comes and it's like Samuel sees his opportunity. Now's the time. The people are ready. They're finally ready to maybe turn from their sins. And so Samuel takes this opportunity to call the people of Israel to repentance. And he says in verse 3, if you are turning to the Lord, if you really are repenting, then put away the foreign gods, the Ashtaroth from among you. So there's something that's been happening for the people of Israel for a long time, and it's idol worship. They have been a people that are very prone to worship the gods of other nations which is pretty bad because the whole reason God has created the people of Israel so that they wouldn't be like the other nations. So they would actually tell the other nations who Yahweh is, who the God of Israel actually is. And so the fact that they are worshiping the other nations' gods goes against the whole purpose of their existence, their whole identity. But we're told here and many times throughout the Old Testament that the Israelites would adopt the gods of the nations. And we're told here two names in particular. Ashtaroth is a, is a plural name for a goddess named Ashtoreth. And her male counterpart, kind of like her, her husband, so a god and goddess that would go together, were Ashtoreth and Baal. And these two gods in particular were looked at as the gods and goddesses of fertility, of love, and of war. 
So pretty much everything you need in the ancient world. Fertility, love, and war. Any kind of success you want, whether that's crops or um, reproduction of, of your own family, that kind of fertility as well. Love, success in war. These, these were the gods that you would worship. And so success in every way, shape, or form was in, in the ancient world, in, in this, um, in, among the Canaanites, among the Philistines, was attributed to these gods. If you want to have success in fertility, in love, and in war, you worship them. Make sure that they're happy. And so these are the gods that are kind of in charge of everything. And the worship of these gods was in many ways marked by what they were in charge of. The worship of these gods was marked by ritual prostitution. It was marked by sexual indulgence. Many of those things. And so Israel comes into the land of Canaan, which is the promised land for the people of Israel, and adopts their gods. And the whole reason it happened is because they disobeyed the Lord right when they got into the promised land. If you read through the Old Testament, you'll just see there's been this promise of land since the middle of Genesis. And it's just you're waiting to get there till finally, when are God's people going to get to the land that God promised them? And they finally get in in the book of Joshua. And the Lord gives them very specific instructions. When you get there, drive out all the people that live there. All the Canaanites, the people that live in the land of Canaan, drive them all out. Because if you don't, what will happen is you will start worshiping their gods. And so God, God says, drive them out. But what do the people of Israel do? They don't drive them out, right? They don't drive them out. And so they just move in alongside the Canaanites and slowly start to adopt their cultures, their practices, their perspectives, their gods, their worship. And it just kind of starts to blend. And in fact, in Judges chapter 2, we're told this. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, that's cool. Uh, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to your fathers. So God's telling the people of Israel, here's what I've done for you. I said to you that I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. And as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And then it says this later in the chapter. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt. And they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. And so when the people of Israel came into the land of, that God promised them, instead of obeying him, they saw the success that many of these people were enjoying. It was the fertile land, right? If you remember, it was a land flowing with milk and honey. It was pre prepared for them. And so instead of listening to the Lord, the people looked around and said, well, they're enjoying a lot of success, a lot of fertility happening everywhere. And culturally, the message that was being told to them as they came in was, well, that's because we, we make the gods happy. And so if you want to experience what we're seeing, come on, worship the gods with us. And hey, the worship is actually kind of fun. 
We enjoy it. We get to indulge in a lot of pleasurable things and worship is fun. So, so come move in alongside of us and worship our gods. And that's exactly what Israel has done. And the people forgot the Lord. And what is so very sad is I'm even reading some, some books this, this week and, and different um, just studies on these gods like Baal and Ashtoreth. And it's so interesting to read it in, in the description. It's just describing history and it, it describes these gods. And I run across these sentences that say, Baal, a god worshipped by the Israelites. And it would just hit me of like, whoa. I know the people of Israel from the Bible. There's, they have one God. It's the one and only God. It's, it's Jesus. It's Yahweh. And yet these other gods, I've, it's been inscribed in encyclopedias. Baal, a God worshipped by the Israelites. And that just hit me this week. And it made me think, man, I, I know we don't tend to worship idols like that nowadays. That feels very archaic for us. But how many things could be written in encyclopedias about different things that the Christians worship? When it should just be Christ and Christ alone. And it just got it just got me thinking. How many different gods and idols and sins we worship that we probably won't ever see written down in an encyclopedia, but it's the same thing. Pornography. A god that Christians worship. Sexual freedom, a God that Christians worship. Greed, a God that Christians worship. Control, comfort, conservatism, a God that Christians worship. How many things could be said there? A deep desire to just be liked by everyone. Oh, how that was a God that Christians worshipped. We should feel the indictment of that because we know we are to have one God. And it's a result of our sin. And God told the people of Israel that this is what would happen. He said, those people's gods will forever be a snare to you. Something that maybe you don't even want to get caught in, but you will get caught in because you failed to listen to me. And so there's just been this perpetual sin for the people of Israel on repeat from generation to generation to generation. And for the most part, Israel just kind of continues in it because they liked it. They liked it. They would worship these other gods not because they were forced to, they chose to, they liked it. In fact, it's true for all of us. Any sin that we pursue or walk into, or struggle with. We do it because we like it. No one's strong-arming you into sin. We do it because we like it. We pursue things because we want them. And sure, we may step back for a moment and say, no, I don't. But we do. That's why we, or else we would never do them. And so Israel liked worshiping these gods in the same way we, we like sinning. Or else we wouldn't do it. And so Israel, though, finally comes to this place in 1 Samuel chapter 7 after years of worshiping other gods and it seems as though maybe they're ready. 
And so Samuel comes to them with kind of this like, hey, if you really are ready to turn from your sins and repent, then do this. And it's kind of like Samuel is investigating, like, is this real? You're lamenting after the Lord. You, you seem to have this sorrow over your sin. Is it genuine? What kind of grief or sorrow over your sin is this? Is this a worldly grief or is this a godly sorrow over your sins? Because we're told in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, godly grief produces repentance. Worldly grief just produces death. Right? Do you just feel bad, people of Israel, that maybe you've gotten caught? Do you just feel guilty and so that makes you feel uncomfortable? And so you feel icky and gross and you just want that feeling to go away? Or is it just because you know it's wrong and you shouldn't do it and so you're just feeling like, ah, I feel bad? Or are you just sad that the, the gods you're pursuing aren't making you happy anymore so now you're just, you need something else and somewhere else to go? There's so many ungodly reasons to feel sorrowful about our sin. And Samuel says, if you really are turning godly sorrow, it will lead you to repentance. And he tells us exactly what repentance is look like, that it must be marked by two things. Repentance, two things. There must be a turning from something and a turning to something in order for it to be genuine repentance. And it's exactly what Samuel's going to invite them to. What he says in verse three, he says, if you are returning to the Lord, put away the foreign gods. Put them away. Turn away from them. Because repentance, genuine repentance, is first a turning away from something. But in order to turn away from something, it implies that you must know what you're turning from right? Israel needs to know, well, what are they, what, what exactly, what, which gods are they turning from? Which ones specifically? Which idols are they turning from? Which, what, what kind of culturally accepted ways of life are they now having to turn away from? Because the worship of idols wasn't just segmented out. It became part of all of life. It became just the way people did life in their society. So I'm turning away from culturally accepted ways of life. I'm, I'm, I'm turning away from trusting in these idols for fertility. I'm turning away from worshiping through sensuality and pleasures and all the joy that that may have brought in my life. I'm turning away from those things. It's a turning away, not just from the sin, but the things that led to the sin, the beliefs that led me to the sin, and the things that are connected to the sin. All those things, it's a turning away from those things. And so Samuel says, if you really are, then put away the foreign gods. And it's an invitation. It's not a demand because a, a repentance to turning from something has to be a willing turn. It has to be a willing turn. You only turn from something if you no longer want it. That's why repentance always involves a heart change, right? It, it begins with this, with this sorrow, like we see here, they're lamenting. There's a sorrow over their sin, but it's not a sorrow that paralyzes them. It just makes them feel like, oh, I'm just so bad. And I, I'm just going to sit here and soak in it and sit in it and do nothing with it. 
That's not godly sorrow over sin because we're told in Scripture that godly sorrow leads to repentance, leads to an act of turning, which means it has to be a willing turn that you now hate the thing enough, the thing you used to like, you now hate it enough to not want it anymore, so you turn. It's kind of a famous story in, my, in, in Jackie's family, my wife's family, about how growing up, they would always eat this meal. Jackie told me she would eat it about three days a week. Um, and it's called Braunschweiger. Has anybody ever, ever had Braunschweiger before? No? My, Jackie described it to me last night as spreadable bologna. So if you need just any kind of picture of how disgusting this is, spreadable bologna should do it. All right? Um, and they would eat this, oh, I mean, multiple days a week as a kid. And I actually pulled up a picture for you of, of Braunschweiger so you can see it for yourself. We should have a little, a little picture for it so you can, you can visualize it. Yes, doesn't that look so tasty? And uh, just leave that up there for a minute. And uh, so they would eat this uh, several days a week until, uh, and, and Jackie particularly, she loved it. Until one day, um, her grandma was over and her grandma goes, Jackie, would you like some liver? Ew, grandma, that's disgusting. Why would I ever want liver? She says, oh, I, I thought you loved Braunschweiger. And it was this moment for my wife where she goes, oh, it's liver? It's disgusting. And she ne never once to this day has ever eaten it ever again. Right? I don't know how just looking at it, you wouldn't just like, no, I shouldn't eat that. But, all right, finding out that it was liver did the, did the trick. Right? But in, in many ways, that, that's kind of a picture of repentance, of something she used to love and run to all the time. Now she saw it in a way she never had before. She now hated the things she used to love so much. She's like, I'm never again going to eat that. You can take that picture off before we vomit. <laughs> it's, it's a willing turn of like, I now hate this thing because I see it for what it is. If it's not a willing turn, it's not repentance. It might be remorse, but it's not repentance. And so Samuel says, turn from these idols, put them away, forsake them. Basically, Samuel's saying, change everything about the way you are doing your life because your whole life has become centered around these idols. Change everything. Not just your Sunday mornings. Your every part of life. Change it. Put these gods away. And it's going to be socially awkward because you live in a culture that worships these gods every moment. So it's going to be socially awkward. And guess what? You really enjoyed, it was really pleasurable to worship those gods, so you are actually also going to be sensually sacrificing. Turn from these things. Repentance is first a turning from something, and second, it's a turning to something. We've talked about this before, right? That the, the heart needs an affection. The human heart will not just turn from something that it likes to nothingness. Your heart will never want to do that. Your heart longs to find an affection, and so it needs something else to turn to. If you have ever tried to repent of sin and just turn from it, but have never turned to the Lord instead, you will just turn right back. Repentance is a turning from sin and turning to the Lord, which is exactly what Samuel says. He says, put these gods away. And in verse 3, direct your heart to the Lord. And serve him only. What you sought in idols, turn from that and find in the Lord. Turn to the Lord. And 
much like it will be a willing turn away from sin, true repentance will be a joyful turn to the Lord. A with joy confession that He is what I need. You know, the difference, um, oftentimes talk to people who say like, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, I believe He died on the cross. Yeah, I believe all those things that, that the church talks about and that the Bible teaches. Thinking that, okay, well, yeah, I, I guess I, I, you're a Christian then. But when we read the scriptures, the demons believe all those things. The demons believe all the truth the Bible teaches about who Jesus is, that what he's done. He's died on the cross. He's perfect, sinless. He's God Almighty. He's reigning. He rose from the dead. He's coming again. They believe all those things. Yet there's no joyful surrender to Christ. There's no joyful turning to Christ as Lord. It's reluctant. It's, yeah, I, I, I believe those. True repentance is turning a willing turn from sin and a joyful turn to Christ to say, he is, yes, who I want. He is who I want to follow. He is who I want to serve. He is who I want to chase after and be with. It is a joyful turn. If there is no enjoyment of Christ, it should leave us asking, do you believe in him? Do you trust in him? It's a joyful turn towards the Lord. The truth is, our repentance tends to be extremely shallow. Extremely shallow. Let me give you a theoretical example. Let's say I was, um, let's say I was an engineer. We have several engineers here, okay? I know, funny to imagine me as an engineer, but let's just pretend for a second I was an engineer, okay? And let's say I got assigned a, a project as an engineer, and I just butchered it. Okay, and I, I absolutely butchered it. I did not go well, but I submitted it anyways because there was a time crunch. And anyways, we'll just deal with the, the details later. Okay, so let's say that I, I just royally messed something up. And so um, several colleagues find out and they go to uh, our boss and talk to our boss about it. And all points back to me that clearly it seems to be that Nick was the one that, that messed this up. And so all of them come to me and confront me on this. And I'm faced with a decision. Do I, do I come clean and let them know, yeah, I messed it up, I'm so sorry? Or do I cover it up and lie and blame it on somebody else and protect my reputation? And so let's say for a moment I choose to lie in that situation. Say, no, 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 I did my part. It must have been someone else. It's probably Miguel for sure, all right? And let's say I did that. Okay, so I lied. And later I come to feel bad that I lied and I want to repent of my lying. Generally, our repentance tends to go like, well, God, I'm sorry I lied. That was wrong. Please forgive me. Amen. Move on. If that's all repentance looks like, there was no turning. There was no turning from anything, and then there was no turning to something. It was just, I did something bad. I feel guilty. I should say sorry and ask for forgiveness. Repentance that is in aligned with what we're seeing here would look more like this. God, I'm sorry that I lied and ran to lying as a way to find acceptance and identity because that's why I lied. I didn't want to get in trouble. I didn't want people to think poorly of me. I didn't want to lose any status in my job. I wanted to be liked. I wanted to be respected. And that's why I lied. I lied to protect that image and that reputation. So if I'm really going to turn, not just from the act of lying, but why I lied, I'm going to have to understand what it is. 
God, I am sorry that I lied to protect my image and my status and to find acceptance. I am turning from that because I hate that. And I am turning again to you where I find all that I need. You accept me even when I fail. You love me and I can never lose your acceptance. I have status in you that will never go away no matter what anyone thinks about me. So Lord, I am sorry that I did this. I now turn to you to find what I was looking for. That's repentance. That's so much deeper and lasting and meaningful than, man, I feel guilty. Sorry, God. Hopefully I won't do it again, but I probably will. True repentance is turning from something and renewing my faith in something else. And so this is the kind of repentance that Samuel's calling the people to. He's not satisfied with them just feeling bad and saying, sorry, we knew that was wrong. He's saying, if we're going to do this as a people, let's put the gods away, put them away. Let's, let's be done with them and let's turn to the Lord and direct our hearts to him and trust in him for everything. And so Samuel calls the people to us because he knows he can't force it. He can't coerce them. He can give them an invitation, but I think Samuel knows that true repentance only comes from a changed heart. And we can't change each other's hearts. I can't force you to repent. You can't force me to repent. A changed heart only comes from something strong enough outside of us to change our hearts, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the kindness of God that when we see it, it changes us. This is what the book of Romans tells us. It says, it is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. You cannot be forced your way into it. You cannot be commanded your way into repentance. It must be the kindness of God to soften your heart to see, oh my gosh, how evil am I and yet how merciful is Christ. This is why sign guy that goes to the baseball stadiums and holds up the repent or, you know, turn or burn sign. That's why everyone hates that guy. I'm sorry if you've done that before. Why? All they're preaching is law. You're bad and you're going to be punished for your badness. So believe in Jesus. What? Why? He sounds mean. Where's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance? There's no gospel preached, right? They're just preaching law. They're just preaching command, which condemns you and leaves you feeling like, what do I do? But it's then when we see the kindness of God that says, oh my gosh, that was what my fate was. That's what was, I was headed towards. And yet the, kind, the kindness of God, he came and took what I owed. Wow, how good is he? It changes my heart when I see that and believe that with faith and leads me to repentance. It changes my heart. And so that seems to be what's happening for the people. They are remembering who the Lord is and what he's done for them. And so they put away the foreign gods. They turn from their sin and they turn to the Lord. And in the midst of all of this happening, it tells us that the Philistines come to attack them. Which I don't know if, uh, how you read it, but I read that and I'm like, do you guys like not remember what just happened like the chapter before when this God like destroyed you? But it's been 20 years. And so they, they, they hear Israel gathering and some people think that, may, that maybe the Philistines thought that the Israelites were gathering for war. And so they thought, well, we'll, we'll strike before they can. And so the Philistines come in 
And they try to attack the people of Israel. And the people of Israel are afraid. And I can't help but see this, that it's while God's people are repenting from their sin that the enemy attacks. That in the midst of a massive turn away from idol worship, back to the Lord, that the enemy attacks in that moment. Almost as if he's coming alongside to say, I know this isn't real. You're going to see the army coming and you're just going to go into a frenzy just like you do before because your faith is so weak. And you're going to turn right back away from the Lord to idols. Except this time, the people have their faces turned towards Yahweh and so they know that they need him. And this will be the evidence of their genuine repentance. It will be a dependence on the Lord. In fact, we're told this in in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist says, essentially, if you're going to repent, then you bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That a, a sign of genuine repentance that you've turned is you will bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And so this is kind of like a moment for Israel of like, are they going to bear the fruit of repentance right now or are they just going to turn right back? And we see them call upon the Lord. All right, we see this starting in verse 8. The people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And so their instinct upon seeing their sin and remembering the Lord and then seeing the danger that they're in is to cry out to the Lord. It's because their faces are turned to the Lord. They know their need for him. Right? Beforehand, no one was seeking the Lord. No one remembered his voice. No one remembered his laws. And so they were just kind of left to come up with like, well, what do we do? We're afraid. We're scared. We're in trouble. Ah, grab the, grab the trophy. But now they remember, no, we need the Lord. Because they realize they stand no chance. They're at such a disadvantage against the Philistines. And it's interesting that the Lord brings Israel He brings them to this place of needing to cry out to him in desperation for rescue. They, 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 like, military-wise, they stand no chance against the Philistines. They're at a severe disadvantage with weapons and skill and all those things. They stand no chance. And so the Lord brings them to a place where they have to, in utter desperation, throw themselves onto him and say, God, if you don't do something here, we are done. You know that phrase that gets thrown around a lot that says, God will never give you more than you can handle? I'm just going to lovingly encourage you to never say that again because it's not true. In fact, many times the Lord brings his people into a place where it is far more than they can handle. In fact, if it is God's goal to make you more like Christ and make you more dependent on him, then you will believe that he actually will bring you into moments where you need to trust him. Because if he never does, well, maybe you're, you're just learning, I don't need God as much as I thought I did. No. You need him more than you ever think you will. And that's what he does for Israel in this moment. He actually gives them the gift of orchestrating a season like this. And God's going to do that in our lives too, where he orchestrates seasons that are far beyond your capacity so that you need him. 
where you have no other option but to throw yourself onto him and say, God, if you don't do something, I am done. And that's what happens here. And the people call upon Samuel to be their advocate. Samuel, pray for us. Literally, don't stop praying for us. We need someone to cry out on our behalf to God. And he does. He cries out to the Lord and it tells us that the Lord hears him, which is going to be this through line through the book of 1 Samuel. The Lord will hear him and there will be times when we will see King Saul in his wickedness and in his sin cry out to the Lord, but the Lord won't hear him. He won't answer him. But the Lord hears the prayers of Samuel and answers them. And it tells us that what Samuel does is in verse 9, Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And so Samuel's praying for the people and then he offers an atoning sacrifice, a lamb to atone for the sins of the people. Because the only way that God's favor can be restored is through atonement for sin. And then God saves his people in a really interesting way tells us, where is it? Verse 10, the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion and they were defeated before the Lord. Again, another reminder like it was last week, God doesn't need Israel's help. He can do it all by himself, literally with the sound of thunder. That's epic. That's amazing. And it actually is really culturally relevant because everyone in, in the ancient Near East culture understood that when battle's happening, there's a human battle going on and a divine one going on. The gods are also fighting. The gods of these people and the gods of these people. And so anytime in the midst of battle that there was some kind of phenomenon, some kind of meteorological event or like thunder or rain or lightning or something like that, everyone interpreted it as the gods are active. And so when the Philistines hear the roaring thunder from the skies, they interpret it as, oh, the God of Israel is acting on their behalf. We better run. God knows how to get through to people of every culture. We don't have to worry about that. And what we're seeing here is something that Hannah told us would happen in chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 10, you remember her prayer? Here's what she said. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces and against them he will thunder in heaven. That's what happens here. Because the Lord delights to save his people. He wants to be their savior. He delights in that. He loves thundering on behalf of his people. He loves that. He loves the, the weakness of his people crying out to him, right? Anytime my kids get hurt, especially my, my daughters, and they're crying, there is something in me. I just like, I want to find wherever they are and run to them and just pick them up and hold them. It makes me feel good about myself, okay? Right? I, 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 and I'm sinful and it's all interwoven with selfish desires. I want to be their hero. I want to make it feel, it makes me feel good. But that's like a small picture of like when God sees the weakness and desperation of his people crying out to him, he comes running and loves to be a savior and loves to rescue and loves to thunder against his enemies. That's what he does here. And that's what he longs to do for us. 
Because we're much like Israel. We're weak. We're stiff-necked. We forget God. We turn to idols. We're consumed with passion for our own fame and our own desires and our own name. And we have no reason for God to love us. We ought to be cut off from Him. And we find ourselves in a place much like Israel of, God, we need rescue. We have no answer. We are guilty. We are sinful. We are wicked. God, we need a rescue. We need someone to pray on our behalf. We need an advocate. And I hope you know where I'm going right now. We need an advocate. We need someone to cry out to God on our behalf. Someone who can help us. And 1 John chapter 2 tells us that if you sin, because you all will, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You see, much like Israel cries out for an advocate in this story, we too have one. That in the midst of our desperation against an enemy we can't defeat, our own sin, we have an advocate who goes on our behalf to the Father. And he's perfect. He's the righteous one. And he prays for us. And his prayers are always answered. And he never ceases to be our advocate. Because he's the perfect representative. He's the God-man the one who represents God and represents man and is the perfect mediator between God and man. And he is our advocate. Because we need someone to speak on our behalf. And we're told early in in the story of God, in, in the book of Genesis, we see this evil come into the world between brothers, between Cain and Abel. If you remember that story, where Cain kills his brother Abel, he murders him, his own brother. And then we're told that that God tells Cain, he says, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground for your condemnation. It's crying out to me from the ground. And that's what our sin does. It's as if our sin and the blood that we've shed with our sin is crying out to the Lord for our condemnation. But then we're told in Hebrews chapter 12, that Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus' blood speaks a better word on your behalf for your forgiveness. There's a beautiful modern hymn that says these words. When my accuser makes the claim that I should die for my offense, I point him to that rugged cross where I found life at Christ's expense. See from his hands, his feet, his side, the fountain flowing deep and wide. Oh, hear it shout the victory. The blood of Jesus speaks for me. We need an advocate to speak on our behalf and the blood of Jesus does just that for us, for those who believe. It speaks on your behalf to say, forgiven. And much like Samuel then turns to make an atoning sacrifice, Jesus too is our atoning sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God, slain in our place, on the cross in our place, because no rescue or salvation comes but through the shedding of Christ's blood. And for those that will call upon Christ as their advocate and call upon Christ 
as the sacrifice for their sins, God will save. He will thunder against the enemy of sin. Because Romans chapter 10 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone. Everyone who turns from their sins and turns to the Lord and calls upon his name to be saved will be saved. No exceptions. And he will save us for eternity and he will save us again and again and again from the power and the presence of sin in our lives when we turn to him. At the end of this story, we see Samuel sets up a stone, a stone of remembrance here. Uh, He calls it Ebenezer, which tells us that the Lord has, has helped us until now or up until this place, the Lord has helped us. And the reason why Samuel does this, you, we all know this, is because we're, we're going to forget. We're, we're going to be like, eh, it wasn't that cool. God wasn't that powerful, was he? He doesn't want people to forget. Remember how desperate of a place you were in and how when you called out to the Lord, he rescued you. Don't forget that. And so a beautiful chapter here where Samuel calls the people to repentance. If you're returning to the Lord with all of your heart, put away the foreign gods and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. You see, repentance should not be these, it should not be these moments in, in our life like we, like we see in the life of Israel where it's just, Obedience is the norm and repentance seems to be like, oh my gosh, they're finally repenting again. Repentance ought to be regular in our lives. Every single day, we ought to be well acquainted with with repentance, genuine repentance. You see, our culture wants to say, don't apologize, don't repent, it's weakness. Somebody might take advantage of you. Somebody might use it against you. But friends, repentance is not weakness. Repentance is dependence on Jesus. And so we're called to be a people that regularly repent. Regularly. Which means fathers, your, your, your wife and your kids need to see you repenting. Need to see you leading in that. doesn't mean you're the only one that repents, but if, if you are called to be the spiritual leaders in the home, you ought to be the chief repenter in the house. But for all of us, regardless of our role, whether we're a husband, a wife, a man, a woman, whatever stage of life it may be, repentance ought to be a regular part, a regular rhythm of our every day because it is a falling onto Christ saying, I need you. And I keep not trusting in you, but I need you. And so, church, today, we have an opportunity again to repent and believe, to turn from our sins that we've been running to, to not just like, oh, man, God, I'm sorry, I've just been bad this week, but man, what have I been running to? What have I been seeking in my sin? I want to turn from this. I don't, I don't want this anymore because I see the kindness of God. I want to turn from it and turn back to Christ again. And repent and believe again and again. And again, that is the life of a Christian, is every day repenting and every day again believing. Let's pray. 
Lord, sometimes, oftentimes, we think that you are just like us. Meaning that we kind of think that your patience runs out. That you get frustrated with us and you get annoyed with us. And, and the fact that maybe we, we keep coming to you and repenting and, and, and turning from sin and saying we're sorry that you just kind of get disappointed and annoyed that we just keep doing that again and again and again. But Lord, that's not your heart towards us. You say, come to me. Lord, you don't, you don't grow weary of being our Savior. You don't grow weary of being the one that we fall on and say that we need. And so, Lord, Lord would, would you help us hear your invitation to come to you? to turn from our sins and come to you again and trust in your blood and trust in your sacrifice and trust in you as our advocate. Lord, the enemy wants no repentance in this place this morning. And so, Lord, we tell him to flee. We tell him to run because, God, we want to turn back to you today. invite Aaron in the band on up um, to come lead us in worship. But as we're, as we're doing that, I want to just give you a moment to just sit quietly before the Lord. And maybe there is specific sin this morning that he is convicting you of that you need to turn from. And you need to turn to Christ again. I just want to just give you, give us a moment to do that before the Lord. Before we respond in worship.